Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. One of the things that annoys me the most about uh, the meditation world is that it is, by reputation and sometimes, frankly, by design, for whole food shoppers, you know, upper middle class white people. Uh, And I'm not, I don't hate those people. I am one of those people. I shop at Whole Foods and I'm upper middle class and white. But it's baloney and malarkey that this is is just for one small privileged set of people. Meditation was invented 2,600 years ago by an Indian guy. And by the way, that's just one form of meditation. It's been around uh, for millennia, practiced by all sorts of people who are not living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um, and in fact, in the United States right now, it is being practiced by all sorts of people of with all sorts of uh, socioeconomic backgrounds and all sorts of racial backgrounds. And so the idea that this is just for one select group of people, I find very, very annoying. Um, and so I'm very pleased to have as my guest today, somebody who is bringing this practice into some places that I think some listeners are going to find very, very surprising. The first time I, um, ever heard Ali Smith give a public presentation. Ali Smith, by the way, is the co-founder and executive director of something called the Holistic Life Foundation, which I will explain in a minute. The first time I ever heard Ali speak publicly, along with his brother Atman and their colleague Andy, he got a standing ovation, and I was one of the people standing and hooting and hollering and clapping, and I had never met him before. Why did he get a standing ovation, and why was I one of those people standing uh, as part of it? Because what he does is incredible. Uh, Ali, um, as part of the Holistic Life Foundation, goes into some of the toughest neighborhoods in one of the toughest cities in America, Baltimore, Maryland. He goes into some of the toughest neighborhoods to the toughest schools and says, give me your toughest kids. And he then teaches those kids yoga and meditation, and the results have been phenomenal. This, And I'm not talking about anecdotal results. I'm talking about scientific studies, which we will get into, uh, showing that they've had real benefit for real human beings who really need it. Um, so anyway, that's my long um, introduction to you, Ali. Um, uh, I make no bones about the fact that I'm a fan, and I'm, I'm very grateful to you for coming on. Thanks for having me. So uh, I want to talk about everything you're doing now, but let, let's step back for a second because your, your background is very interesting. Um, how and when and why did you come to meditation? Um, I'd say the first thing that got me into meditation was my dad's prostate problem back before I was born. Um, he had a prostate exam. He hated the experience because he had a problem with his prostate. And uh, his best friend taught him a couple yoga poses, and he wanted more. So as he learned more yoga, he got into meditation as well. He started off with Hatha, got into meditation. And then uh, me and my brother were kind of born into it. We grew up in a self-realization fellowship church, meditating every day. Uh, our dad would have us meditate every morning before school. And meditation was just a part of our lives. And so this is this is you were growing up in inner city Baltimore. Oh yeah, we were grew, we grew up in West Baltimore, um, right in the heart of where the wire was filmed and the riots happened last year. So heart of West Baltimore, our experience outside of our homes um, was similar to everyone else, except for the fact that inside of our homes we meditated every day. So you you have referred to it. This is your term. You said you were raised by hippies in the hood. Totally. My brother coined that term. Uh, Oppmann comes up with that one. Uh, Hippies in the hood. That's what we called them. We were vegan. We were meditating. We went to a Quaker school. Um, Our parents spent a lot of time taking us camping and in the outdoors. So like back then we were the lame kids. Now we would have been the cool kids. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So be a little bit more specific. What kind of meditation were you doing? Um, so it was uh, start off in the self-realization fellowship method. It was like a subjective meditation was what they called it. Um, so it was a lot around focusing on your inner light and the inner same light that shines in me is the same light that shines in you and everybody and everything else. But it's taking the time to still your mind and still your body and focus on that light so that it can shine through your meditation. And then when you're finished meditating, it's still kind of shining through you in your actions, in your words, in your deeds, and in your thoughts. What, how do you see the inner light? You close your eyes, and what, do, you, do you need to see it, feel it? What, what, tell me a little bit more about that. All the above. So it starts off with like um, kind of traditional yogic meditation with uh, pratyahara, with his, which is withdrawal of your senses. So you pull your senses from the outside to the inside. So you're going to see the light. You're going to feel it. You're going to hear it. You're going to taste it. You're going to smell it. All your senses are withdrawn into that light, and then you learn to focus on it, and you can meditate on it. 
with the uh, the end goal of becoming one with it. And what, when you say the light, what do you mean by that? Just kind of the fact that the lights are on in, in that we're alive? Um, more like um, that universal energy or universal spark with, inside of everybody and everything. So it's just that that force that is inside of everything and everybody that that's like the similarity and like the the part of me that's in you and the part of you that's in me and just focusing on that and what what is this church that your dad was it um it was, it's called this it's a in the self-realization fellowship lineage uh, autobiography yogi uh the church we grew up in was called the uh universal church of absolute oneness so this so this is hindu minute hindu stuff oh right? no not no? at all no? it was um totally um I thought autobiograph- autobiography of a yogi was written by Yogananda. Yogananda. Yeah. So the the way that it worked was Yogananda sent, they started churches, but they were churches were based on all different types of faith. So there was yeah. a big sign on the wall that said, truth is one, men call it by various names. So it was the base for a church was always the Bible, but then it would go to um, the Bhagavad Gita or the Quran or the Torah or Native American spirituality, anything just to show the underlying truths in all religions so that um, religion wasn't what it was based. It was more of a spiritual church, but the meditative technique is that a, is that a, was that a Hindu technique? Because I've I've come up more in like sort of secular mindfulness slash Buddhism, and that's something that I've never heard of. So it, I'd say it's more of a, a yogic form of meditation. Like I, I don't consider it a Hindu really because there's mm-hmm. no mantras involved or anything. Mm-hmm. Maybe an Om, but that's in you can go to a yoga class and hear an Om, but it, it's more of a spiritual form of meditation than a, than a religious practice. And and so what are the benefits of it? Because it sounds to me uh, like the benefit would be stillness and also sort of compassion as, yep. a, as opposed to what I, what, what the kind of meditation I practice, which is really the benefit is mindfulness. So, I mean, th- I think there's a lot of benefits. I feel like it gives you, it definitely gives you the stillness. It definitely gives you the compassion. Uh, I'd say interconnectedness, like connecting with yourself and with others becomes a lot easier. And I think a, a big part of it is like putting up that, uh, kind of shield in the morning before you go out into the world and you have to deal with all that stress and then kind of burning off the stress that you do pick up at the end of the day. Um, I don't want the things our teacher always used to tell us was start your day and end your day in the light and you'll, you'll notice the difference. And uh, so you were meditating as kids and then, and I'll pick up the story a little bit and you tell me where I would get, I'll go wrong. But then you and your younger brother, Atman, went off to college at the University of Maryland. Is that right? Yep. And and that's where you met your friend Andy. Yep. Whose last name um, is eluding me right now? Gonzalez. Gonzalez. Mm-hmm. And so t- what happened there? Out on the party scene, meet Andy, start hanging out and talking, and realize we see the world in pretty much the same way. A lot of suffering that was unnecessary, and it kind of seemed like people didn't really care about it. And uh, we started asking questions, and we weren't really happy with the answers that we found. So we got it. We started reading. Um we read more during that, I guess, year period than we did in any of our other four or five years of college, however long we were there. But it was like uh, we wanted answers, and, and it led us back to meditation and yoga and mindfulness and contemplative practices. Answers to what specifically? Why we're here. You know what I mean? Like, what are we doing here? Like, there has to be more to it than just graduating from school and going to get a job and buying a house and waiting for retirement and waiting to die. You know what I mean? There And... Like And like we said, we saw a lot of problems that didn't seem necessary and people didn't really seem to care about them. So we wanted to do something like there had to have been more to it that, that, that we weren't being given the answers to. What problems were you bothered by? Um, I was an environmental science and policy major. So, I mean, I saw a lot of environmental problems that that seemed like, like OK, we have one planet. So, I mean, we got to do something to protect it. Um, and then Ottman was a criminology and criminal justice major. And a lot of our friends through for whatever reason they were in the criminal justice system as kids and then as adults and um yeah and i think just the lack of of caring and empathy and compassion that people had for themselves and others seemed to be the biggest problems and so it brought you back to meditation Mm -hmm. um and so had you lapsed in your practice oh yeah we had totally lapsed Um, once our parents got divorced um we weren't really daily meditators anymore we we probably went I mean, we still would go to church every once in a while, and they had meditated church. We went to a friend's school, so there was meaningful worship and the moment of silence before things started. But it was just, uh, yeah, our, our daily meditation practice had really lapsed. And so you started again in college? Oh, yeah, jumped right back on it. Mm-hmm. And the same kind of meditation, or did you move to something different? Um, different forms. Um, that we, we studied as many forms as we could because uh, we knew that, I don't think we knew that why we were studying so many forms of meditation. In the end, it was because, I think it was because that somewhere deep down we knew we wanted to share it with other people, and we knew that we couldn't teach one form of meditation to everyone, and people wanted different things, and we couldn't really go into like an elementary school talking about focus on the light inside of you and Om, and like that that's not really going to work. So we've, I think somewhere deep down, 
subconsciously we may have known that we needed to learn all these forms of meditation, but yeah, you know, our personal practice is what it is, and what we teach is something a little different. So you, your personal practice right now is still what you described earlier. It's a lot of different things, depending on the day and what I got to get prepared for. I mean, because I know, I mean, there's tons of different forms of meditation, so it's just depending on where I am, what stresses I have in my life, what stresses I may not have in my life, or or what I want to do. I'll do a certain form of meditation, but but that one uh, where, where I focus on my inner, that inner spirit or that inner light inside of me is one that is, it's a go-to. So the three of you guys graduate from college and you try trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life and you made an interesting decision. What was that? Uh, to start a nonprofit organization, which we had no idea how we were going to do it. We had no idea about really what a nonprofit was. The only thing we knew that you had to have a nonprofit to get grants from the federal government. And, and you wanted to do what with this nonprofit, with this money and with this organization? Initially, we were going to save the world with federal grant. I mean, for federal grants, like the federal government was going to pay us to save the world. That was our initial just, plan. But no particular way. It was just going to save the world. Oh, yeah, we were going to do everything. We were going to do environmental <laughs> programs. We were going to do yoga programs, meditation programs. We were going to do gardens. We were going to do food. Like, we were going to do everything. We were literally, the three of us were literally going to save the world. <laughs> you were pretty idealistic. Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, it was, I mean, now we look back at it, we can laugh because we, I mean, three people can't really make a dent in a neighborhood but i mean it, it's it that that was where the, the genesis for hlf came from well okay well, you've made more than a dent but we'll get to that in a second so so what did you ultimately settle on as the thing you were going to do we were going to do environmental programs and we were going to do yoga programs mm-hmm. those are two things we were going to do we came with a name and we we weren't really sure how we were going to do them but those are two things we we're going to do environmental and and yoga programs so as i as I understand it, and, and having heard, talked to you about this before, the what you, the, the first step you took was to actually go to the local elementary school in the neighborhood where you grew up? So that was like the second. The first step was we were like sitting around doing pretty much nothing. Like we had our practice, and that was it. And we would pick our mom up from school that she was working at. She was doing a um, social-emotional learning program in elementary school, and the principal would see us every day and we're like, there's no guys working at this school, really. Would they want to coach football? So then we got approached first by a, one, the principal at Windsor Hills Elementary School. And she wanted you to coach football, and you said what? Um, initially, we were like, yeah, we'll do something. But I think with our practice and the way that we felt from our practice, um, we were like, we got to share this with other people. We went back to her that Monday, and we're like, well, well, can we do an after-school yoga program? And she was like, well, honestly, I don't care what you guys do. As long as you guys are working with this group, you can do whatever you want. And if she, she gave you not her most well-behaved children. Oh, no, we got all the, the quote-unquote problem kids. We got the kids that were beating each other up, um, that were getting kicked out of school, that were getting suspended, that were constantly in detention. And uh, those were the group. That was a group of 15 we started with. By the end of the year, it grew to 20, but it started off with 15 kids. And when you took these kids, how old were these kids? All in the fifth grade. Fifth grade, okay. So mm-hmm. 10-year-old kids, uh, and, you, <laughs> and you said, you guys, uh, we're going to teach you yoga and meditation. What was the response to that? Uh, they thought we were crazy. I mean, because now yoga is really popular, but in '02 when we started with them, yoga wasn't as big, particularly not in Baltimore. So it was just they looked at us like we were crazy. They were like, you guys, I mean, but we bribed them with basketball after yoga or kickball or dodgeball or something. So it was like, okay, if you guys do yoga, then we can do this. If you guys do yoga for a week, we'll go on a field. We'll have a pizza party. If you guys do yoga for two weeks, we'll go on a field trip. So it was just anything to kind of get them into the practice, a lot of bribery. Or incentives, as some like to call them, but I mean, we got them to start doing the practice. I th- look, I I condone every every step you've taken, um, uh, at least thus far. So, uh, and the, the did you find it worked? They were they were they were willing to do the, once the pizza was uh, procured. They were willing to do the the yoga and and I guess some breathing exercises. Yes, yeah, so it was physical yoga, some breathing exercise, and some meditation at that point, um, but. It worked. I mean, and I think they started to feel. I think the, we caught the kids once they started to feel that inner peace that you get from first the movement, then the breath, and then sitting and being still, like still in your mind and still in your body. And they weren't getting it anywhere else. It was just something that they felt a little different, but felt really good to them because in a world of chaos around them, and even inside their minds, a world of chaos, they were finally getting stillness. So that I think that's what caught them. What, what tell me about the worlds of chaos in which that the, these kids inhabited? What, what, what was going on in their homes? Um, Baltimore is very, I mean, pretty well known for like being high up on the list of negative statistics for cities. I mean, the the people there, strong people, resilient people, but there's a lot of negativity going on, whether it's drugs or violence or 
I mean, anything along those lines. The ACEs scores are really high for for young people in Baltimore. Ace, uh, adverse childhood experience. Yes, like yeah. very, very high, like re- like shockingly high. When I actually, when we actually looked at the numbers. So, like child abuse, neglect, mm-hmm. sexual abuse, sexual abuse, um, parents being incarcerated, like like any of those that you can pick. Like the kids have gone through, lots of them. And these in these fifteen to twenty kids, you're talking about, like they they had drug abuse in the family, maybe prostitution in the family. Uh, and they were they were going through any and everything you could possibly think of. Uh, some of them had it off had it a little better than others, but but some of them had had the worst of it. So uh, some truly well earned anger. Oh yeah, definitely well earned anger. I mean, we were breaking up fights pretty much every day for the first first maybe three months of the program. Like literally one or two fights every single day. We broke up. Then the fight started to dwindle. The amount of kids in detention started to started to dwindle more. None of the kids were getting suspended. And then, like, the parents and the teachers and the principal were actually coming to us because we were in the back part of the, the building, so no one knew what we were really doing. But they would always say, whatever you guys are doing, keep doing it because it's working. So when you say it's working, what do you mean? Um, so the kids went from reacting to responding to things that were going on around them. Like, they, they learned the ability to kind of take that pause between – just someone saying something about them and punch them in the face to stop them for a second and maybe walking away and going to breathe. Um, they were able to focus better in class. Uh, they weren't getting in trouble. Like they were just less impulsive and they were able to kind of regulate themselves a lot more in, in any situation at home or at school. Uh, what, what, exa- I know we, we said yoga, breathing exercises, and meditation. Can you just break that down a little bit? What exactly were you teaching them? Okay, so we, we did a lot of movement because we saw first that they had a lot of energy, of so we course, wanted to yeah. kind of get them to just be able to still their bodies. And uh, so the movements to still your body, the breath work, um, some of it's like um, pranayama techniques from uh, from uh, from yoga, but we kind of take all the Sanskrit out of it and let the kids name the breath work, and it just kept it pretty simple, just stuff that was going to help them still their minds. Like and what then, kind of names they come up with? Um, the taco breath, the stress <laughs> breath, the Bigfoot breath. Um <laughs> The snake breath. What is taco breath? Um, it's called traditionally. It's called kaki or satali kriya, where you curl your tongue uh-huh. and you breathe through your tongue, so your tongue looks like a taco. So they call uh, it the taco I see it. breath. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So gotcha. they've got names for everything. We let them name them, and, but I mean, they they felt the benefits. Like their minds started to slow down some. Then they were actually able to sit, and their bodies were still, and their minds were still, or still are. And then they were able to kind of start the meditation process. So what what kind of meditation were you teaching them? Um, a lot of breath-based meditation, some mindfulness meditation, um, a, any and everything we could just to expose them to different forms because we wanted them to be able to stick whatever stuck with them. Like me and my brother grew up meditating together, but he loves walking meditation and I hate it. So, I mean, we knew if our likes in meditation were that diverse and we grew up meditating together, taught by the same person, our dad, like we had to give people different tools and whatever they decided to use, that's what they used. So we started off with a lot of guided. We did a lot of guided meditations because the kids had been through a lot of trauma, so we didn't want to give them like those empty spaces for the trauma to come up. So we, we, we kind of got them through it all the way through. But then after a while, when they got comfortable with it, we would just be like, all right, you guys, let's, it's time to meditate. And everybody would just get silent and they would do whatever practice they spoke any, to them. Any stories from that first year that stick out of of, peop- of kids and transformations you saw? Um, all right, so was, there was one kid that fought literally every single day, um, literally every single day. His his mom even told him at one point that if he she finds out that anyone hit him and he didn't hit them back, that she would she would whip him herself. Uh, so he was, like, constantly on edge, constantly fighting. And at one point, he bit a kid in the forehead, and the kid's forehead started bleeding. Like, it was just – it was a mess with him. And then by the end of the year, this kid was, like, leading the classes and doing breath work, like, leading the breathing exercises, leading meditations. And at the end of the year, he was, like, a totally new person. Wasn't beating – I mean – he was good. Like he, he wasn't like one of those kids that would fight all the time and get beat up. Like I, I don't think I've ever seen him lose a fight from fifth grade all the way through adulthood. But he was just one of those kids that learned to calm himself down. And then as an adult, he became one of our best teachers. But so that kid's working for you now? Uh, not anymore. Um, he he worked for us for maybe like four years, four or five years. He worked for us and was an amazing, amazing teacher. What's he doing now? Um, he's doing transportation for like um people with disabilities. So this kid was headed towards something almost certainly pretty bad. His mother was telling him some pretty negative stuff, mm-hmm. and he was fighting all the time. Mm-hmm. And he went on to become a yoga and meditation teacher and now is driving people with disabilities. Yeah. So that is a completely different life trajectory. Yeah, I mean, he's one of those people that 
that'll tell you, like, if it wasn't for having the program and Ottman and Andy on his lives, that he probably would either be dead or locked up because that's the trajectory. That he, that's where he was headed. And is this unusual, or, you, or do you see a lot of this? No, I mean, actually, most of our staff are former students of ours. So a lot of the kids that, that we worked with from fifth grade or and I guess the group from our neighborhood we started with in the second grade, most of them are our staff. So they're kids that were those bad kids that were going through a lot of things that the practice helped and they want to give back and help other people with it. But for you to see these kids who, you know, odds are are heading toward a life of incarceration or death or uh, crime um, to all of a sudden be doing something that is sort of undoubtedly constructive, what's that like for you? I mean, I I think it shows me that, that like, there's, like, everyone has a good heart. You know what I mean? They might not have the the opportunity or the push in the right direction or the outlet for that energy. So they've got all this energy. They're going to use it for something positive or something negative. So all their outlets are negative. So they're using it for negative things. But once you give them the opportunity and the resources and particularly someone to support them, they've, they're going to use that energy in a positive direction because they want to uplift their communities. They don't want to be stressed out. They don't want to have to worry about getting locked up or killed or murdered. Like they want to help, but they just don't know how to. Take me back to 2002. I mean, how did you guys know what you were doing? I mean, a lot of people, I mean, I've been meditating for, whatever, seven years or something like that. I am very careful not to call myself a teacher because you know, I can only, I can barely get my own meditation practice together. You guys were kids, and you were teaching very vulnerable kids how to meditate. How did you know what you were doing? Um, at the time, we really didn't. We were kind of just helping. You know what I mean? Like, we didn't start right away with meditation. Like, I feel like the, the physical practice, we jumped right into the breath work we kind of eased into, and the meditation was more along lines. It started off as like, okay, let's just practice on being still. Can you lay here and be still and, and watch a couple breaths? Like, it started off really, really slowly, and I think as we became more experienced, then we got deeper into the meditation practice with, with that group. We stuck with that group for fifth grade through eighth grade, so we were with them for a while. And I think by the time they got into seventh and eighth grade was when we started to deepen the meditation practice that we did with them. And so this is 2002. Uh, the program uh, s- started to grow at that point. In, w- in what ways? Um, I think we just saw other opportunities out there. We're like, well, if this works with 20 kids that were the bad kids at the school, like maybe it can work in other places. So I remember we we found a, a high school we did some work in. Um, my dad's girlfriend at the time worked for the Baltimore County School Board, and she talked about how stressed out all of our coworkers were. So we did a program for them. Um, Harambe Drug Treatment Center was another place that we start, like one of the initial places that we expanded to. So it was just like, like, hey, this stuff, this stuff works for everybody. It's just a matter of presenting it to them in a way that speaks to them and the problems that they're going through in their lives. So it was just very, very slow. And we were just jumping on any opportunity that popped up. Like at that point, we weren't really thinking strategically. It was just like, oh, they need help. Let's go help them. Oh, they got a program. Let's go help them. And it wasn't lucrative work. So if, if I recall, you guys were working – overnights at a, a mental institution, a mental hospital? Yeah, we worked at a um, crisis center, mental crisis center, for, for pretty much the entire weekend. We work probably like 60, 70 hours during the week, maybe 80 hours somewhere. Like It was just like a full, full, full-time job during the week, and then we would go and work three shifts on the weekends to keep money in our pockets. A lot of commitment. At, what, at some point, um, uh, I, I believe it was Johns Hopkins or the University of Pennsylvania, maybe both of them swooped in and said they want to stud, start studying what you're doing. Uh, who, who came in and what did they find? Um, it started off with uh, Dr. Mark Greenberg from Penn State University, mm-hmm. and he connected us with Phil Leaf and Tamar Mendelson from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. And I remember Mark telling us that we needed to do a study to prove that it worked. And we looked at him like, we, we know it works. Look at the kids. He was like, no, 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 you guys need to do a study. So... We did the first randomized control trial on yoga and mindfulness in urban youth, and we got some some great results. Um, we saw most of the measures for the first round were cognitive, so it was just around self-regulation, ruminating thoughts, uh, focus, attention, and stress. And we got really really good results for for all those. Um, and there's actually a scientific article published in the uh, Journal of Abnormal Child Psychology. So we we got some really good results for that one. And uh, was that the only study, or have there been more? Uh, we actually did a second round of the study, which was I think was pretty cool, because uh, actually with that one, we did follow-up. We did um, six-month, 12-month, and 18-month follow-up to that one, and we did some physiological measures and took took the school data as well, because, I mean, principals don't... I mean, principals care about cognitive measures, but they want to know, like, is it just decreasing suspensions and fights and increasing attendance and grades? So we studied all of that, and I think the coolest thing that came out of that was the fact that we saw 
that kids were going back to the breath, like over the movement and the meditation, like almost every single kid that they followed up with, uh, I guess a year later, 18 months later, were all still doing breath work. Wow. And and did it improve their, uh, did, did they show that it improved uh, the, their behavior at school and their performance in school? Yeah, it, it, there were some links to, um, I think they looked at test scores. They didn't look at grades, they looked at test scores, promotion rates, and suspension rates. And there was definitely a few positive measures around those. Uh, so at this point, you feel pretty confident saying this this works. Oh yeah, I think it works. I mean, even without the study, I still feel confident saying it works. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger: "Never worry alone." Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. So uh, how, what is the size of the program of Holistic Life Foundation now? What, give me the full scope of what you're up to now, I guess, 14 years after you started. Okay, so our after-school program started with 15 kids. Right now there's 120 kids in our after-school program. Um, total, we work in about 14 schools, serving about 4,500 kids a week in Baltimore City public schools. Uh, we work in the private schools a lot now. Um, Op and I grew up in the private school system, and when we graduated we wanted to work in underserved communities, and we felt like they needed to practice more. But then as we started to look, we were like, nah, I mean, like everybody's stressed out for different reasons. Like, So we, we started working in the private schools as well. Uh, we do a lot of trainings and workshops and, um, yeah, a lot of trainings and workshops because people are interested in how we do what we do. So we so we do trainings in a lot of different places to show people how to bring yoga and mindfulness and other contemplative practices to kids in general, not just urban youth, but kids in uh, in private schools as well who may be more affluent. So we do that. Um, we're working with um, Will Concepts on the Grow Mindfulness for Teens app. Uh, we're doing a lot of curriculum development. Um, we're doing – trainings around trauma-informed yoga and mindfulness. Uh, there, there's a lot that we do, and, and a lot of it's uh, – the thing about it now is that Op and Andy and I are stuck in the office most of the time, and we don't get to do a lot of hands-on teaching in Baltimore. But when we do travel, we do get to teach, and we do get to facilitate a lot of training. So we not, may not be directly reaching the kids, but our staff's reaching the kids and the teachers and the, and the people that we train are reaching kids. It's amazing what it's grown to. Yeah. Um, it's amazing. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty nuts to think that we started to – like we expected to constantly be sitting in in a classroom teaching kids, but now we're behind a desk. But like I said, at our most, we served about a hundred kids a week, and now we're serving forty five hundred kids wow. a week. So. so, so just are there stories that you can tell about transformations among kids that you think would be worth sharing? Yeah. Um. So I know the, the one of the first kids from our neighborhood that we met was a kid named uh, I won't say his name, but he was he's a kid that they used to call him Smiley because he smiled all the time. And um, he became one of our best young teachers. I think in the second grade, we did a workshop for the um, Baltimore City Department of Parks and Recs, like all their leadership staff. So we walk in there. It's Ottman, Andy, and I, and this kid Smiley. He walks in, and we look at him. We're like, you're going to teach this class. He's like, what do you mean I'm going to teach this class? These are adults. And we're like, no, you teach the kids at the after-school program. Just pretend they're kids and go teach them. This kid goes in there in second grade and knocks it out the box. Like these people from the these people from the Baltimore City Department of Parks and Recs are like looking at him, ama- like they're amazed at this kid. And he's up there, he's confident, he knows the practice, he's explained everything perfectly. 
demonstrate and everything. And then for like fast forward a little bit to high school, so he was a great student of ours. Then like uh, I think this must have been like tenth grade. This kid, um, he lost his dad. Uh, he had some problems with his mom's and some and mom's some drug abuse. His brother got arrested, so he was kind of on his own. He got locked up like three times. I went to court with him the last time, and the judge was like, "Well, you can't go back home. Where are you going to live?" And he pointed at me. I was like, "I'm going to live with my mentor," and um, I wasn't expecting that. Um, so I called my girlfriend at the time. My kid's mom was like, "Hey, uh, we got Jarrell's coming to live with us," and he came and lived with us. And he lived with us for a while. He was doing well. And then he moved back to the neighborhood, and now he's working for us again. So he made like everything came full circle. So, wow. yeah. that's great, yeah. and I'm sure. I just have to imagine after doing this for for so long that you've lots of stories like that. Oh yeah, tons uh, of kids like that. You got two boys. Mm-hmm. Do you teach them to meditate? My oldest son, yes. My nine year old, we've been meditating together since he was four. And what about the younger son? Uh, he's not really there yet. Like uh, he's more into the physical practice. He's more of a. Um, How old is he? He's four. Uh, so what is the right age? To, I have a, I have a one year old. You met him. Yeah. Uh, you met him when he was a couple months old. What is the right age to? So this is a very selfish line of questioning I'm I'm launching here. But what is the right age to introduce meditation to a kid? So I think it differs from kid to kid, but I think it's once they start asking the right questions. I know my my um, my oldest boy, Asuma, like at at the time when he was he started he would start to look at me meditating, then he'd start like mimicking me when I was doing my physical practice or doing some breathing exercise. Then he started asking questions about like well. Well, what is that? And why are you sitting still? Why are your eyes closed? I'm like, well, you really want to learn? So it wasn't me forcing upon him. It was just me answering his question So when when, when he was ready, and then we rolled from there. Okay, so it's not – so as a dad, I shouldn't be pushing this on him. It's more like if he asks questions, answer them. Yeah, because I didn't want to be – like I know the things that my dad pushed on me. I, I mean, you kind of rebel. I'm like, oh, that's lame. It's coming from my dad. And I didn't want meditation to be one of those things. Like other things, fine, like multiplication or long division right, I can push right, on right. him, but – I don't want to push meditation. I wanted to be something enjoyable that wasn't a punishment. It was something that was fun that he could go back to whenever he needed it. I'm trying to convince my son not to rip the faces off of his of our cats. That's really what the level we're dealing on right now. Yeah. Uh, but so I have a hard time imagining him ever meditating. Um, what do you say to parents who say, um, "I my kids really need this"? I think all kids need it for whatever reason. I mean, I, I think there are resources out there. And I, I think all kids need it for whatever, for, for differing reasons, whether it's focus, whether it's anger, whether it's needing to connect with themselves or self-regulation. Like there's there's plenty of reasons to meditate and there's plenty of different forms of meditation. So, but I think all kids can benefit from the practice. But but, what, but I guess what I should have phrased that question better. Uh, there are, I imagine, a lot of parents listening to this right now who, who think, who, who may be thinking, you know, I would love to have my kid do this. How, how and where do I start? I'd say it's maybe start with your own practice. I mean, I know that's what, what my son connected to it was seeing his parents practice, seeing me practice. And um, I, I think that might be a good start is to maybe find some resources for yourself and make it something that you all can share together. I'm sure you can find classes out there or resources. They can reach out to the Holistic Life Foundation if they want to. Like, we can get them some resources and put, figure something out. But I think I think there are resources out there. But I think connecting to your own practice and then sharing it with your kid is a good one. And that's something I often say when people ask me, and I, I'm I'm kind of making it up. But my sense is it's going to be very hard to have mindful kids if the parents aren't mindful. Totally. So you just you you need to be modeling this behavior. Uh, if you're freaking out every time you know and you don't get an email you don't like, or you're yelling at your spouse, or uh, you know whatever you know eating uncontrollably but right before bed there you're it's gonna be hard for your kids to learn how to control their emotions yeah because kids call bs early like they'll see it and they'll call it so i mean you got to kind of walk it before you can talk it with them what about how you talk about these practices to the population that because you're you're not just dealing at this point you're 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 way beyond just inner city schools you're mm-hmm. in private schools too but how, how do you talk about yoga and meditation uh that 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 doesn't get you laughed out of the room um i think the way we deliver it is is like we tell people it's a complementary skill to whatever you're doing so like you can be mindful with whatever you're doing you can practice breath work and be inconspicuous you can meditate and it's all just going to enhance your life it's going to enhance your connection to yourself to the people around you it's going to decrease your stress level you'll know when you feel certain emotions rising that you may not want to deal with and it might not get out of control You'll be aware of your thoughts. So it's just like a, an enhancement. It's like the cherry on top of the cake. You know what I mean? But w- so, well, what is the most common pushback you get? 
I mean, in terms of skepticism, people saying, you know, this is what, whatever, this is what, I don't know, BS or, or lame or what, what, what kind of skepticism do you confront? So surprisingly, we usually don't get skepticism. Really? I really? mean, because we've gotten good at delivering it in a way that people, it resonates with people. So we, the way we deliver it to a group of pre-K kids at a, at a private school would be different than how we delivered it to kids at an underserved urban high school. So just showing them skills that they can use and a lot of experiential practices, like where the kids can feel what's going on. So it's not a bunch of theory. It's like they're they're embodying the practice and they know what it's about. Well, Drew, tell me more about that. So you walk into a underserved high school in the inner city and it's the first time you're meeting these kids. What do you say? How do you how do you talk to them in a way that gets them even willing to entertain the notion of meditation? I mean, we, we talk about the lack of peace in their lives because, I mean, most of the kids are dealing with a lack of peace. We learned through working in high schools that most high school kids, particularly in, I mean, I don't know if it's particularly in the underserved communities that we work in, they don't sleep very well. Um, they're stressed out a lot. They're angry about a lot of things. They don't feel connected to anyone or anything. And we explain to them and actually get them to feel how the practice does that. And it's a lot less movement with, with kids, um, with older high school kids, because they don't want to mess up their clothes or they don't want to look foolish in front of their friends. So it's a lot more inconspicuous practices, practice but you can sit there and no one knows if you're sleeping or if you're practicing. So they can practice it on the bus. They can practice at home. They can practice in class. They can practice around their peers who may not be doing it. And they're not singled out as moving around a lot. They're just kind of sitting there. So it works that way. And a lot of discussions. Kids want High school kids want to know. They want to know what's going on and why things are and why things aren't in a, in a better place for them or for their peers or in their community. So it's a lot of discussions, a lot of breath work. And a lot of meditation and mindfulness practices with high school kids. Do you run into kids who are just unwilling to do it? They'll close their eyes and just actually sleep, and they're just not buying it. And w if so, what do you do with those kids? Let them sleep. We just let them sleep. I mean, and then eventually their friend they start talking to their friends, and their friends start start talking about how much they love the practice and how much they use it at home. And then they may not do it with the group, but they'll come back and meet with us separately and come talk to us about the practice. So, are, are there nuts that are that are you just can't crack? Kids that just you just you you never you never reach. So we used to think there were, and um, a couple of the examples are kids that that we've worked with um, that that we would see years later that would bump back. I mean, because Baltimore is not a huge city, so you bump into a lot of these kids randomly uh, in in certain places around the city, and they'll tell us how they they did the practice, like how they they may not have done it around us, but they thank us and they say that you know when things get really stressed out for me, I, I do remember how to take a belly breath. Or I do know how to focus on my breath and relax. So they, they'll go back to it. And it may look like we totally failed with this with, with, with that kid, but but it's it's in there somewhere. And then when the things get really, really bad, they go back to it. What are the biggest problems you face day to day in, in your line of work? I guess on the nonprofit side of things, it's just like funding, funding and I guess just expanding the programming in a sustainable way. And I guess just day-to-day -day implementation is finding time during the school day because a lot of times teachers don't want to give up their teaching time and it's hard to incorporate into the schedule. So I think those are the two major challenges. Um, what, do you, what are your thoughts on the thing, the stuff I was talking about at, right at the beginning of the podcast, that, that, that the, the, um, you know, the cover of Time magazine when they did the mindfulness revolution, uh, they had a, a blonde uh, woman you know, floating off into the cosmos uh, on, the, on the cover. Uh, and I, I thought on some level it was fine, but on some level, first of all, I was excited that Time magazine was covering the, mind, the fact that Mindfulness has become a big, big, big and bigger deal in in the society. But on the other hand, there were a lot of people who were like, you know, why, why, why reinforce the stereotype that this is for you know um, wealthy white people? What's your view on this? Do you get as annoyed about this as I do, or do you think I'm I'm making too big a deal of it? No, I think it's spot on with it. Um, we, I don't think Atman Andy and I thought about it at first because we were teaching like. Atman and, Andy, Atman and I are African-American, Andy's Puerto Rican, so we were teaching mostly people of color when we started in Baltimore, so it was just that was what we saw. I don't think we realized it until we started going to retreat centers, and we'd look around, and we were the only people that looked like us there, and then we would show up to, like, and then as, as it, time went on, we would go there to teach, like to lead retreats, and we walk up to the people greeting us, and they'd be like, hey, you guys must be the band. What? No, it never ever had an instrument. What? I don't even play an instrument. Band? What kind of are there bands at meditation retreats? I, I anyway, guess, I, I guess there are bands there, but we were always the band. Like for the first few times, and we started running with it. And our running joke was that we were an Aboriginal folk band, 
And Andy was our lead singer. Ottman played the didgeridoo, and I played the bull roar. And people would believe us. We have them going for days. They would see us like walking into teach them like, "Where are your instruments?" Like we didn't. You said we were a band. Like we we teach meditation. Like that's not what we do. So yeah, we try to make light of it and have fun with it. But it's it's a serious problem, I think. Oh, yeah, it's really serious. I mean, because meditation. I think it 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 makes people feel like meditation or mindfulness or contemplative practices aren't for them when they don't see people like them doing it. Or, and also if they don't see studios in their neighborhood or if they can't afford a retreat center. Um, it's kind of cool now that we have students that tell us when you ask them what they want to be when they grow up, they're like, I want to teach yoga. I want to teach meditation. I want to teach mindfulness. Like, that's what the kids are saying. That makes me want to cry with, with, with happiness. I mean, I, I, I think that's amazing. But what, what, I mean, aside from the phenomenal work you're doing, what can be done to change these stereotypes because I feel like my, my my role I mean I've tried to kind of do my little part to to break uh, meditation out of the sort of um, ooey gooey uh, airy fairy uh, um, ghetto of of like um, touchy feeliness that mm-hmm. too long it was in but but I am limited in in my reach because I am who I am, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with who I am, but I am who I am. I, I was ra- I was born on third base, you know. I was, I was raised by doctors in suburban uh, Massachusetts, and I, I haven't had a lot of the challenges that the population you're talking to has had. So I don't know that I'm the right guy to be reaching everybody. So what what can be done, and how can somebody like me even help? I think just shedding light on people who are who do look different than the cover of Time magazine. You know what I mean? On the work that they're doing. And also, I mean, so so one of our, our best volunteer of all time at the Holistic Life Foundation, a lot of people would ask us, though, I don't look like you all. I can't really do this work. But our best volunteer of all time was about six feet tall, blonde, and talked like she was from Northern California. And the kids loved her because she was herself. She was authentic, and she was always herself. So I think it's just one of those things, like, you can go and, and introduce people to the practice, I mean, from – I mean, people know you. People know your face. So, I mean, it's just one of those things, like, you can introduce them to the practice and show them that, like, it, it is for you. It is for everyone. So I think you can give back in, in a lot of different ways that may not feel comfortable, but as long as you're authentic in yourself, people it resonates with people, and they, and they feel the love, and they and you can get them to experience the practice, and they roll with it. And beyond me, what do you think should be done just overall to, to sort of change the, the the stereotype about who meditation is for? I think just making it accessible to everybody, as many people as possible and as many forms as possible, and not just having it be a cookie cutter of this is what meditation is, but really introduce people to different styles of practice so that they can pick what's right for them. And then it, it's, it's just something. That, and one thing we do is we do reciprocal teaching. So our kids that run, are in our after-school program or in a program that we run, we'll let them lead the practice and explain to them how it works. And then they go out and spread it into their community because we never were able to get parents in for parent programs. But the kids would go home and share the practice with their parents. So it shifted the culture of our neighborhood without us actually having to work in our neighborhood. The kids did that for the most part. So do you still live in that same neighborhood? I don't anymore. Ottman and Andy do. So I got two kids, so I had to I had to relocate a little bit. But yeah. Ottman and Andy still live there. And do they, do they think that neighborhood has really changed? Oh, it really has. I mean, we're, we're around there a lot. It's just uh, the, the culture has changed a lot. Instead of not being able to interact with your neighbors because you didn't trust them. Now it's like everybody's walking around and they're interacting with each other and they're asking us quite like, I still go around there like, Hey yoga man, what's up? Like, or like asking questions about meditation to help them with smoking or their stress level or what's the first stage of mess. So like even the conversations are starting to shift and change. So you really think just being there for the last 16 years, um, do I get my math right on that? 14 years that, that actually the, the way the neighborhood, the way people in that neighborhood treat each other has changed even if just a little bit? Oh, yeah, I know it has. Because a lot of the kids that would be doing some of the negative things in that neighborhood, now they're they're helping, they're, they're teaching yoga or they're teaching meditation or they're teaching mindfulness. And their friends that are incarcerated or doing negative things are seeing what they're doing. And they're like, well, wait, you make, you make, you make more than me. You're happier than me. You're less stressed than me. And you're doing something positive. Like, I need to get with these guys too. So so it's like they're pulling their friends to, to the other side too. So you... You you have to feel really good about that. Oh yeah, I'm I'm very I love I love what I do. Like I I love it. I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Maybe more of it and in different ways. But yeah. What is the future for you and for the organization? Um, I think we'll continue to grow. 
Um, I think we have to look at scalability um, in, a, in a realistic way just because at some point, I mean, we, we're in a lot of schools now, but it has to be our model now is training teachers to go into those schools. So if Baltimore City Public Schools came to us and said, hey, we want you in every single school in Baltimore City, we're working on being ahead of the curve for that one. Or if another school district comes to us, uh, we're looking at possibly a hub like in another city because, I mean, we, we think the best solutions are homegrown and we're about training people in their actual place to do more work. Uh, we want to do more trainings. We want to expand what we do. We want to do a little more online. We've got to do some writing. We need to find some time to kind of disappear for a little while and get some things out of our heads and out of our hearts and on the paper. And you mean like put out a book? Oh, yeah, totally. I would read that book. I would, pretty... also, I would also have the three of you on to, to promote it uh, and get behind it. I think you should write a book. Yeah, and we just got to, I think we're going to make ourselves take the time and just go ahead and do it. Uh, I mean, the story that you have to tell is phenomenal. Um, uh, what is, just out of curiosity, we talked about this a little bit again, uh, a little bit before, but what? just walk me through your daily practice. Um, so my daily practice is a lot around, so I have a meditation I do in the morning. I'll, I'll meditate in the morning. I'll do some mantras. I'm like, my own personal practice yeah. is different than what I teach. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, yeah, your own practice. I'll meditate. I'll do some mantras. Um, and a lot of it is about like off the mat yoga practices. Like I'll do like bhakti yoga, like when I'm pissed off at someone, like working on seeing the light in me and the light in them, despite how angry I may, or how I feel they may have justifiably made me mad. Um, just trying to work through that and still see the light in them and related to the light in me. Um, being Maybe, aware. So, so, so let me just stop mm-hmm. you. There. So somebody has what cut you off in traffic or um, made a big mistake in the office or your brother is annoying you or whatever. And you have to, you try to recognize your shared humanity. Exactly. Like the, the, the connection you have with that person, which is a lot of people say it's the hardest and the easiest form of yoga to practice to, to love someone when they've wronged you and and particularly when you feel it's unjustified but still at the same time you still share that that deep connection with that person and you share humanity you share a universal connection with them and it's hard but how often does it work i mean if you practice it it works all the time really it's just the hardest part is actually getting to that point like getting past your ego saying that you're justified in being angry and once you can get past that then you can really start to love them and in the meditation, the formal meditation practice you're doing in the morning, how long is that? Five, ten, twenty minutes? Um, so there's different. So there's one that I practice that's thirty-one minutes, and there's another one I practice that's just uh, I go until my my mind tells me to stop. What is the thirty-one minute? It's it's an old Kundalini meditation uh, that 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 I practice, and it's it's probably never heard of it. But it's, I don't it's, know what Kundalini is. Uh, right? It's a, it's a form of yoga, so it's uh-huh. just an old old Kundalini meditation that I practice. So it's it's yoga movement. No, no, no. It's it's actually still. It's just uh, it's it's mantra based. And I see. Focus on one of your chakras. So, so. so you're, sorry, a mantra, and you're focusing on a chakra. Uh huh. How can you do that? You you learn to do it. Okay, so you're it you're, becomes easier. You're focusing on one part of your body, which is mm-hmm. a chakra, right? Yeah. Um, I, this is stuff that I'm not. Yeah, an one of your energy centers. You're okay. focusing on your your third eye. They call it. Yeah. Okay, so the space between your eyes, mm-hmm. uh, but but a kind of above. Um, yeah. and uh, and you're repeating a mantra to yourself mm-hmm. silently. And you do that, and and uh, and that's the thirty-one minute one. That's the thirty-one. You minute set a timer one. for that. Yep, I got a cool little gong app on my phone that works. The or inside I, timer. I should get the inside. Timer. Yeah, the, the inside timer. And cool. also, uh, my kids really love the Muppets and that Manamana song. So yeah. that's my timer sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> and and the other one that you go for just as long as you feel like going. What 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 is that? Oh, uh, that's the one I used to practice when I was little at my at my heart center and just focusing on the light inside me and just. Going as deep as I can into it. Gotcha. It's interesting to hear about your practice because, you know, my mine is so much more is so much, I guess I don't know, drier is that the right word? Where it's much more based on just uh, watching my breath coming in in and out, or just trying to non-judgmentally note whatever is coming up in my consciousness. Mm-hmm. It's, mu- it's, it's it's a lot less. Uh, uh, it's a lot less. It's a lot more. It's a lot simpler on some levels. I mean, I don't think there's, I think it's what, what's right for each person. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so like whatever's right for you, that's what you roll with. I mean, I don't think it's like what I do is right for me. What you do is right for you. What everybody else does is right for them. As long as they're meditating, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. Do you ever have really bad days where you're like a complete jerk to people? If I don't meditate, it, it you can tell. Like there's a difference between meditating and non-meditating Ali. I try not to go two days without meditating. Your girlfriend's here. I don't, does he, uh, just yes or no, does he ever act like a jerk? No, she's saying no. 
She's behind the glass. I, yeah. I'm not sure I believe her. There's a difference. She she know she can tell the difference if if like she'll so like we were in Boston doing some programs and at a friend's birthday party and uh so we were up there and it was like day two like for whatever travel day on day one we didn't get to meditate it was a long travel day day two she's like Ali what's wrong she could tell something was off and then sat we stopped we meditated and then she's like oh, okay there you are so it was, there's there's a difference. You're pretty cool at baseline. I'll, I'll say that. Um, <laughs> Ollie Smith, co-founder and executive director of the Holistic Life Foundation. If people want to find you, where do they do that? Uh, the Internet's the easiest place to find us. Our website is www.hlfinc.org. Anything else people should know before we let you go? Um, we love everybody. We're just trying to spread some love. And we, any way people can connect to the practice, we're down for. And, and if there's any help we can give you in helping you, your family, your community, uh, just reach out to us. Thanks, as always, to the producers of the show, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, Sarah Amos, and Dan Silver. You can hit me on Twitter at Dan B. Harris anytime you like. If you liked the episode today and you want to hear more like it, you can subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and leave a review. Thank you for that, and uh, we'll talk to you next week. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.